How's it going, everyone? John here, the host of Spear Talk. You might not know this, but before I record an episode, I like to break a sweat. And I do that using the ChopFit. Over the course of the past year, the ChopFit has allowed me to lose weight, tone up my body, and feel even more amazing about myself. A feeling that you should all feel about yourself as well. If you use this code, SpearChop10, you get $10 off your order. Once again, use code SpearChop10 for $10 off your ChopFit order. It'll change your life. Thank you. How's it going, everyone? Uh, John here, the host of Spear Talk. And today we're welcoming two incredible guests. Uh, the first guest, Josh who I was fortunate enough to trade with and serve with, the United States Secret Service. Uh, we spent a lot of years at the White House. And one of the things we always talked about on some of those long nights was all things Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, Mothman, anything you could imagine that would storm the White House. The other <laughs> guest today is the incredible Ken Gearhard. Is it Ken is a crypto, cryptozoologist, field investigator, a fellow of the Pangea Institute, incredible author of some incredible books right here, uh, The Essential Guide to Bigfoot, The Essential Guide to the Loch Ness Monster, and The Menagerie of Mysterious Beasts. You've also seen Ken on Monster Quest, Ancient Aliens, Missing Alaska, and some other incredible shows. Guys, it's great to have you on here. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. It's definitely an honor and a pleasure to be here with you. So I'm uh, looking forward to talking about cryptids, cryptozoology. Yeah. Same here. Love Thanks it. for having me on, John. So, Ken, to kind of get this started, obviously, Josh and I love all things Bigfoot and the unknown and the fascination with it all. For the listeners out there that aren't aware that know of Bigfoot and Loch Ness Monster, but they're kind of grouped under this idea of cryptozoology. Now, if you could kind of explain to us what that is and then how the heck you got into this line of work. Yeah, well, uh, the word cryptozoology is derived from the Latin words cryptos, meaning hidden, and ology is, of course, the study of. So it's a study of hidden animals, cryptozoology. A zoo is the animal part, of course. Um, by hidden animals, we basically mean species that have not yet been recognized officially by science. And many of those tend to be very highly romantic and sort of legendary creatures like Bigfoot, the Loch Ness Monster, the Chupacabra, Mothman, and the list goes on and on. Uh, most scientists, of course, are reticent to get involved in that kind of research because these things seem so improbable that they don't want to put their reputations on the line. So it falls to laymen like myself, but we still follow a, a scientific methodology. So we're still trying to stay within the confines of zoology and scientific research. As far as how I got into it, it's just been a lifelong passion of mine. What I always tell people is uh, when I was a kid growing up, I loved animals. Lots of we I had lots of weird pets like a uh, little alligator caiman things and snakes. And then I was really into monster movies. So I grew up on Godzilla movies yeah. and <laughs> Land of the Apes. So when I first found out about Bigfoot, when I was about eight or nine years old in the, in the 70s, it was just like something clicked in my head because here you had, it was a monster and it was also kind of an animal or a creature possibly. So it was kind of like, it was a perfect uh, synthesis of those ideas. And I never planned on making it a career, but um, it's just something I've, I've researched my whole life. And then, you know, years ago, I got very lucky. I started working with other Bigfoot researchers and cryptid investigators and, um, doing field work um, and uh, wrote some books and, and was on some TV shows. But the really, I think the really influential part that I always like to highlight is that my mother was very adventurous and loved to travel. And she used to tell me stories about the Yeti and the Mothman growing up. She really stoked my interest. And uh, she arranged for me to travel with her all over the world. I mean, when I was at a young age, I was camping along right. the Amazon river. I was, hiking through the Australian desert and yeah. Africa and all these Asia everywhere. And at age 15, I was at Loch Ness in Scotland at 15 years old with a movie camera awesome. and taking notes and, and trying to investigate the Loch Ness monster. So it's something awesome. I've done my whole life just as a passion. Never again, never really planned to make a career out of it. I've just been very blessed. How it must be for me, it's fascinating because you're an expert and you spent this whole, your whole life and career studying whether it's Bigfoot or Loch Ness and these other th entities. But the fact that there's nothing been definitively proven one way or the other, does it kind of dishearten you in the sense of 
that maybe you're searching for something that doesn't exist. Like, how do you kind of, when news bits comes out of people with found footage or, oh, I, my uncle saw something in the cabin or whatever, but nothing comes to it. Does it kind of dishearten you and kind of bother you that maybe you're chasing the Holy Grail that doesn't exist? Well, admittedly, I've become a little bit more skeptical through the years as I've st- stayed in this field. I think I'm more skeptical now. When I was younger, maybe I was a little more uh, optimistic about some of these. So there are a lot of cryptids that I view with kind of a skeptical eye now, a lot of evidence that I you know, immediately try to debunk and explain because that's, that should be the first step in the process anyways. But it always, to me, it always comes back to certain things, which are, first of all, the world is a lot bigger than we realize. Right. Even in this modern day and age of super fast tech and social media, I mean, Mm. I've been around the world. I've seen how much wilderness area there is that's unexplored, that's uninhabited. About half of the Earth's land surface is still uninhabited by man, largely. You know, you've got all the deep oceans and waterways. Um, and also new species are being discovered. You know, uh, most of them are small, but I mean, there are literally, technically there are about 5,000 new species that are described each year. Most of those are going to be things that are like insects, millipedes, right. mollusks, things like that, that aren't that significant. But every few years, scientists recognize some, some large animal that's, you know, unexpected. 2013, a new species of taper was described in South America. We were talking about a 250 pound animal. Um, so, so it's kind of those two dynamics that, that keep me encouraged. And also w- one thing that keeps me grounded is a lot of my heroes, the pioneers in the field of cryptozoology, men who went before me. I mean, it goes back to the 1950s guys. That's when it kind of, this whole pursuit started. A lot of those pioneers and the generations that came before me recognized that they would not solve those mysteries in their lifetime and that they would have to pass the mantle on to the next generations. And I guess I, I accept that now too. I love that, that I may yeah. not it may not be in my lifetime that we find definitive evidence of a Bigfoot or a Loch Ness monster, but I see a younger generation of researchers coming up that are ready to, you know, to to go with it. So um, you know, I'm hopeful yeah. in, in that respect. To pivot off uh, uh, John's kind of question there, and like you know, you're preaching to the choir on some of the cryptids. I mean, I've had some strange experiences myself, and and I'm open minded. So uh, the the concept that there could be some things out there that haven't been discovered is isn't foreign to me. Um, where do you kind of draw the line between? Uh, you know, the, the skeptics or the sci- mainstream science that writes a lot of it off um, and then kind of where you're at now uh, with, um, you know, some things you're not seeing evidence to. Do, do you think maybe some of the things that we haven't found evidence for still like, existed at one time and, and kind of the window of opportunity to discover those things is, is kind of gone? Well, that's that's certainly a ra- reality of um, of the world we live in. I, I I'm very blessed to work with the San Antonio Zoo and uh, I'm a volunteer there, but uh, they've kind of embraced me and and a lot of my cryptozoology uh, interest. And what I've learned at the San Antonio Zoo, we're really engaged as a lot of zoos are in active breeding programs for endangered species conservation. And when you realize how many species have gone extinct in our lifetime and how many are rapidly declining, you know, it's a, not to be on a soapbox here, but it's just a mm. reality that we are basically right. destroying enough habitats and climate change. All these things are, are having an effect. And so, yes, it is a reality that some of these things may actually go extinct before we find them. Maybe they were already vulnerable or endangered at the time that we first began to, to investigate and explore and look for them. So um, that is a reality. Um, as far as the, you know, the scientific, you know, it's all, it's all a balancing act really, but, uh, you know, a true skeptic is someone who I think is, tries to be as objective as possible and not let your, your hopes and, and biases and things kind of lead you uh, astray. So, um, so I don't know. I, I think, uh, I, I don't, I try not to get discouraged. You know, I try to be optimistic and, um, but I also try to look at things in the most scientific terms possible. And science oftentimes is about probabilities, you know? Mm. So you might have three possible explanations for a phenomenon, but you have to look at which explanation, you know, uh, is able, is the hardest to challenge in terms of, you know, what it presents, you know? Mm. So, um, 
do you think yeah, uh I answered it <laughs> yeah no I, I think that definitely answers it and and i like how you ended on probability um which i'll ask one more question before we get back to john uh do you think with like a lot of the modern technology we're seeing in some of the shows that you've been a part of um, on TV, uh, the increased use of, you know, drone footage or, you know, how everyone has a camera in their pocket now. And that necessarily wasn't the case, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, do you think that it's only more of a matter of time before some of this stuff is more documented in a credible way? Yeah. Uh, good question. No doubt. I think technology is our best friend at this point. Um, Example, uh, you know, I just finished a book about writing a book about the Loch Ness Monster. Um, a lot of people aren't aware of the amount of sonar evidence. Thanks, John. Mm. <laughs> a lot of sonar evidence that's been collected. People think about the photographs and the sightings. But dating back to 1954, there have been a number of times when large, very large, like 20 to 30 foot animate objects have been contacted and recorded with different sonar technologies in Loch Ness. And... Um, it, looking at the, the the schematics and the way the sonar technology has improved, I mean, the imaging is just, it's mind-blowing now mm. with the amount of detail that you can see, whereas in the past, it was just a blotch, you know, a little thing, a little blotch, okay, there's something down there. So that's one example. Thermal imaging, of course, some of the cryptids we look for, like Bigfoot, we assume they're they must be warm blooded or, or endothermic. So they're going to give off a heat signature. So if you're out there in the dark woods at night, suddenly, you know, you're not affected by the amount of light available because you're looking for heat. And that's, mm. that's a pretty amazing technology. eDNA is a burgeoning thing in the field. And, um, you know, you can now take a water or soil sample uh, from an environment and then filter out all of the biological material and, and geneticists can actually go in there and map the, or sequence the DNA of every animal that's come come in contact with that water, wow. you know, over a few weeks. That's pretty mind blowing. So yeah, yes, I think, I think the technology is really good. Is what's going to push push us over the edge, or you know, to to the summit. If you know, if we are going to prove that any of these things exist, I I, I think that's a, a key point. One of the things, obviously, I think you as well. That Patterson footage, the iconic footage of Bigfoot walking past that pile of uh, logs, whatever. I've when I first saw that, and when I was younger, going to the library, pulling all these Bigfoot books out, and I was always drawn to that. I mean, I really want this thing to exist. And the the skeptic part of me is always very, this could have been a guy in a suit, like you have I have that uncle that always dresses like a wolf man or, you know, it scares us. It's like, that could have happened. But it's like, say, say it is real, and I want to believe it is. The, the fact that that person caught that image or whatever at that time, it's kind of mind-blowing. And it's just for me, I guess the question is, how often do you go back and look at that footage and kind of debate that or kind of like, how do you compare that to what's like, you? I see that footage. I haven't seen anything that real, I'd say realistic compared to maybe some grainy photos or some weird noise type stuff people record in the woods. Like how come there's been such a disparity between that footage to what could happen next week? Yeah, um, well, a little while ago, I was talking about how I grew up on monster movies in the late yes. 60s, early 70s. Well, what I often tell people is the very first time I saw the Patterson-Gimlin footage on TV, my immediate thought was, that's not a costume. Mm. I'm, I'm familiar with monster costumes of all kinds right, back right. in the yep. 1970s, and you could actually see this thing looked naturally robust. I mean, the muscles and the, the fluidity. Right. And, it just Walking. didn't look yeah. like a clunky costume, which is what you would expect in 1967. Um, mm. I've never wavered on that opinion. I, I'm convinced it's real. It is the best footage by far, which is a, a, you know, a skeptic could make into a strong argument against Bigfoot because it seems like with all the camera technologies we have now, we would have at you least matched that amazing, by now. Right. But what, what a lot of people don't realize and understand about, and you know, a lot of it was just dumb luck. But what a lot of people don't realize about that that day, and uh, the footage was captured in the afternoon of October 20th, 1967. Um, Roger Patterson happened to have a 16 millimeter film camera with him um, that he had rented because he was filming a documentary about his search for Bigfoot. And he had heard there were some tracks in that area recently. Right. He had actually 
Patterson was a rodeo cowboy and an athletic guy, a small guy. He had actually positioned the camera in his saddlebag on his horse. They were riding on horseback and was trained and ready to pull that camera out on an instant's notice. So he had already prepared himself for the possibility, as remote as it might be, that they would come across a Bigfoot. A lot of people don't know that. So unlike mm. people, those of us that might fumble with our you know, yeah. right. Bigfoot, you know, I mean, he was like, that was it. That was his mission. And he was a pretty passionate guy. When he and Bob Gimlin, and by the way, yeah. I've known Bob Gimlin since 2005, and he's pretty darn credible. He and Gimlin rode up on horseback, which is another factor. Mm-hmm. You know, they, uh, they maybe the Bigfoot couldn't smell them because their scent was being masked by the horses they were on. It's a good right. point. Yeah, I never you thought know, they, that. The Bigfoot was apparently <laughs> crouched down by a water source at Bluff Creek, obscured by some fallen tree uh, root system maybe smelled the horses or heard the horses, but Bigfoot's not going to be freaked out by animals like that. Um, so when they rode around this tree, they, there it was, and uh, it stood up and their horses apparently did react and got real, especially Patterson's horse wasn't real well-trained and it started acting up. But as he was falling off of his horse, Patterson had the wherewithal to grab the camera out of his saddlebag where he knew it was, fall off the horse, and he was so gung-ho about Bigfoot that unlike a lot of people that would have probably freaked out or frozen, he started running towards it and filming. Oh, wow. <laughs> fearlessly. So, and he stumbles a few times and you can see that in the film and he finally positions himself on his, on his knee and he's able to get the classic shot that we get of Patty walking off. Right. So anyways, there's a lot of factors there that people don't realize. Like, why is that footage? Why, how was he able to get that footage? Well, it was preparedness. It was yeah. dumb luck. It was the fact they were on horseback maybe, and also the fearless nature of Patterson and his willingness to kind of really chase after this thing and get this footage. At least that's what I think. Now, I Mm. think I would be scared out of my mind because you're not expecting it, but for you guys, I guess starting with you, Josh, you come across Bigfoot in the wild. What is your reaction? Are you taking a picture for the world to see or do you you just kind of, I always envision myself if I saw like a unicorn or a werewolf or something crazy, I'm like, Part of me wants to be so selfish and just witness this with my own two eyes and say, B. But then part of me is like, man, do you realize what I could sell this picture for? And have yeah. centuries of people debating whether I faked this thing or whatever. So what would you do if you saw a Bigfoot? You know, like uh, I was going to mention, like some me and some of my friends, we do go uh, camping. Uh, we do our little expeditions here and there up in Mitchell State Forest in Pennsylvania, where there have been some sightings up there. And, you know, we go up there for the fun of it. And, uh, you know, if we do see something to document it, but, you know, if, since we both have a law enforcement background, you know, there's like what you're intending to do. And then there's the moment it happens. And I think it, it would depend on like that, that time and distance, you know, that safety buffer. If I see something that large that has had just as many stories of you know seeing you and running away as there have been horrifying stories of very bad encounters out there like the legends of you know some people not disappearing in the woods or not coming back um i think it would be you know if it's far away probably try to scramble for that camera that phone but if it's closer i mean i I think you're having that pucker factor kick in (laughs) where you're like i gotta go man like and hope you can outrun something that's that's that much taller and i'm not a big guy so i don't think i would fare well in a fist fight with bigfoot so yeah i think it's for sure and and that's it's a good point and ken you know maybe you can um allude to some of this i had a question of like when you're out in the field researching, whether it be Bigfoot or, you know, anything else, do you put any kind of thought into your own security of uh, what you would do if you do encounter something? Um, and to pivot off that, what has been your scariest moment you've had in the field? Wow. Right. Cause you can still see a bear. Like you, that animal can at least that bear can really kill you. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a fair question. Okay. So, um, not to come off as too cocky, but I consider myself pretty fearless when it comes to chasing these things, which I think is maybe it's crazy, but that's, that's one of the things it takes. But uh, when I was a kid, I, I grew up in Southeast Texas in kind of a swamp when I was a teenager. And I used to, we lived out in the, in the remote area. There were a lot of venomous snakes and creepy crawlies and alligators. And I used to sneak out of my window at night and run around in the woods you know, as a kid, so I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't scared of anything out there. And that, I think it's kind of a state of mind, but what is the most dangerous animal on the planet? 
human. Exactly. Yep. Right. We're, we're the biggest, baddest thing out there. That's kind of always the way I've looked at it. And uh, in fact, in my Bigfoot book, I talk about how I think Bigfoot is recognizes that we're its biggest threat. It's intelligent enough to recognize that, then it's, it's going to largely avoid us, which is what happens in the Patterson-Gimlin film when the Bigfoot just kind of walks off and doesn't confront the men. Um, that said, I mean, I'm very respectful of nature. You know, you have to have a healthy respect for nature when you're out the outdoors. You had mentioned, uh, you know, running into a bear. Sometimes when I'm out looking for cryptids, I'm thinking about, you know, in Texas, one of the scariest animals you don't want to run across is a wild pig. You got right. giant 250, 300 pound hogs down here and they are very aggressive and they will charge you. When I was in Alaska, we were, were concerned about the bears, but what were we more concerned about? The mooses. Mm. Oh. Mooses are like 1500 pounds and they are very yeah. aggressive and they will charge you and mess, you know, turn your car over. So there's always a, an animal out there that you're kind of, you know, in the back of your head, you're thinking, okay, that's, you know, let's look out for that. Um, the scariest encounter I've ever had which was actually kind of nerve wracking, um, was in 2005, I was with two other investigators at a place in uh, North Texas called Cottonwood Lake where there had been recent Bigfoot sightings. We were on an expedition. We were alone out there in the middle of nowhere. Just after dark, we heard something grunting at us in the brush and I've got a recording of it and it sounded just like an ape. I mean, it was a huge, powerful, oh, 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 just like that. And we all looked at each other and we're like dropping F-bombs. Like, what <laughs> is that? You know, we don't, we're outdoorsmen. We've never heard anything like that before. And um, so that, that's when I was kind of the most nervous. Reason being, sometimes I carry a shotgun when I'm out in, in Texas or whatever, mainly for like the hogs and gators mm -hmm. and snakes or whatever. But um, I wasn't armed on this trip. And one of us had a gun. The rest of us were unarmed. To his credit, he was going to try to flush it out. And mm. I got on one end of this brushy, you know, with my camera yeah. and the other guy was on the other end. And I was just thinking, I'm about yeah. to be more famous than Patterson, but this <laughs> might be, this will be the last thing I ever do. It'll be the Gerhard film and, yeah, you know, rest in peace. But, and then it's just two dudes like covered in peanut butter that are running at you and you're like, what the, yeah. <laughs> but anyways, this guy started going on his belly, belly crawling with the shotgun through the brush and it was pretty thick. And he finally, he backed out and he said, man, this is nuts because I'm exposed. I'm going to be on my belly going in. I don't know what this wow. thing is. It sounds aggressive. So we tried to, uh, you know, it's a long story and I write about it in the Bigfoot book, but yep. we got, yeah. to a, got to a higher vantage point with a spotlight. We did see some eyes shine, yellowish green that looked like it was in the same spot. We heard some other vocalizations that night. We camped out there and heard these moaning sounds and it was actually answering back to me because I would call out and then a little while later it would call back and it seemed to be interacting with us. And then the next morning when we finally made our way through this brush in the daylight, we found deep human-like footprints and some uh, mutilated turtle shells that had been torn in half and thrown, thrown around. So all of that to me was the most convincing thing I've experienced personally and probably the most harrowing. And I will say that there are three other occasions where I felt like I might be close to a Sasquatch vocalizing. And, and uh, on all of those locations or on all of those occasions, like Patterson, I ran and moved quickly toward that sound. Mm convincing myself that this is my job right. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I'm out here to look for this thing <laughs> well, how am I going to look if I suddenly think it's there and I don't do anything about it so yeah. you just kind of throw caution to the wind at that point and, and also faith in you know that an animal isn't necessarily going to kill you just because you're right. there so you know I think what I love most about this is that here's someone like you who's dedicated their whole life to this and I, I would want someone like you to find this because I, I can just imagine how happy you would be and how like, like how mind blowing for one thing. Uh, but one of the questions that Josh and I always kind of laugh about is and discuss late night is how come there's never been like a body of say a Loch Ness <clears throat> floating or a Bigfoot or a Chupacabra. You think that some of the stuff we see, it's kind of like you, I could explain it by based on it was a, a fetus of a certain animal or whatever. But so could you kind of touch upon that? I know you mentioned in your book, you talk about somebody's found stuff where it's like, it actually turned out to be an ape carcass or a monkey carcass, but how come we haven't actually seen, do they bury their dead? Like what's, how's this, their mindset for this? 
No, those are those are strong arguments against and, you know, things that have to be considered. OK, so obviously each type of cryptid has to be taken on a case by case basis. Correct. Some are more probable than others. Chupacabra is not so probable, in my opinion, kind of far out there. Same right. with Mothman. Hmm. Things like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster could be. There's a lot of evidence. Now, to answer your question, you know, why haven't we found a body? Yeah, it's, it's a good, it's a solid question because it seems like if there's a viable breeding population, there have to be enough of them. They're big. Eventually someone's going to find a carcass somewhere. But my answer to you is as unbelievable as it sounds is there have been bodies found and they just haven't been properly recognized. And, and, you know, for example, Interesting. Right, right. With, re with regard to the Loch Ness monster, maybe not at Loch Ness, but as I write about in the book, I think that the Loch Ness Monster is just one example of the same species spread across the globe. And these are basically undiscovered primitive whales called archaeocetes. And in 1937, at a whaling station off the coast of British Columbia, some flensers cut open a sperm whale stomach and a juvenile, right. one of these animals slid out. And it was totally intact. It was a snake-like animal with a horse-like head and flippers. Wow. And they put it up on boxes and took pictures of it. And it, it is at Naden Harbor. It's called the Naden Harbor Carcass. But subsequently, the, though those photos still exist, the carcass itself, you know, they disposed of or who, nobody knows what happened and what they did with it. So that's a shame. But um, so that's an example of a missed opportunity. And we have right. tragically a lot of those in the field of cryptozoology. With regard to Bigfoot, I think that, you know, it's, it's a complex problem. We're probably talking about an exceptionally rare species, perhaps teetering on the edge of uh, extinction. Um, we're talking about an animal that's presumably highly intelligent, maybe not to our level of Homo sapiens, but smart enough to recognize that we are its greatest threat and direct competition. So it avoids us. And therefore it lives in the most remote wilderness areas we don't go. It moves around a lot, highly nomadic, and it also seems to be nocturnal. Hmm. So you think about a highly intelligent, very rare animal that's living in remote wilderness, moving around right. a lot at night. That's not something we would likely find. Now, still, there would be the odds would be there that maybe if they don't bury their dead, and that's a theory that would tie into what I just explained, right? If they're right. smart enough to avoid us, they're smart enough to hide their remains from us. Um, but still, you think that maybe by chance someone would go in a cave or find, and there are those stories too, you know? So there are a few accounts of, okay, someone found a body, but no one knows what happened to it. There's something called the Minnesota Iceman that may or may not have been a dead Bigfoot that turned up in the 60s and disappeared again. So you have all these different factors. And the last one, important one, I think, is that, you know, just the fact that remains do, even remains from large animals, they aren't always very obvious and they don't always last a long time. Mm. So even something like a moose, which I talked about a minute ago, you know, a dead moose in the wilderness, it's not long before bacteria, insects, birds, coyotes, right. everything, even mice and deer will <coughs> eat the bones and everything just kind of gets scattered and disintegrated. And even if that had happened with a Bigfoot and there were some bones left, can you imagine someone just like walking through the woods and they see a big bone and they think, whoa, mm. that right. must be a moose or a bear yeah. or something. Look at that big femur. And they just step right over it, not knowing that that might have been, you know, the, the evidence. <laughs> so, I don't know. There's a lot of different factors there, but, and I know I'm rambling, but one last point I want to make, which is all of the major cryptids that we always talk about are all predators, right? They're all well, presumably right. carnivorous. Right. Bigfoot's an apex predator and omnivore, in my opinion. The Loch Ness Monster, probably a predator, mystery big cats, cryptid wolves and things like that. You don't hear about cryptid deer or sheep, you know, because yeah. those animals would be, <laughs> frankly, pretty easy to, to, to discover for the most part, you know. Well, we're going to make one here today on the pot. Yeah. We're going to make a cryptid sheep to start. <laughs> so anyways, around. the whole point there is that obviously predator, predatory animals are more intelligent. They're more right. elusive. That's how they're built and designed is to be avoid being seen. I mean, you could probably be within 50 yards of a mountain lion and not know it if it doesn't want you to know it. You know? Well, you bring up a good point because I think half the population, probably more so, is very, they're on their phones, not doing. So if someone goes to hike, they're not out there hiking, looking for Bigfoot. They're going to get their workout in. 
take some pictures of the summit, Snapchat, whatever. The people that like us, obviously yourself, that are specifically looking for this stuff, if you came across a bone or a footprint or some weird marks on a tree, you're going to study that and examine it. And I think the problem is, it's a good problem to, if they are around and live, that we can, they can preserve them and not be bothered by humans, is that if we do see that stuff, we could kind of be like, if I see a bone or something that, Hey man, I see enough dead deer in my life. I got to call cat or send the pictures. And I think people, I think they've lost that sense of uh, wonderment and study and science. It's all getting lost. in, like you said, social media and other bullshit. And I think there needs to be this sense of wonder like space. Hey, like we could, this would be really cool if we found this stuff. Yeah. Agreed. I wish more people would be kind of become citizen cryptozoologists and look for those kinds of things. You know, I love it when people send me pictures of animal carcasses they've stumbled upon or hair samples or any of that stuff. And, you know, 99.9% .9 of the time, it's always, you know, eventually it's a mystery, but you can solve it and say, Oh, this is, you know, this, I think this mm. is what this is, but um, someday uh, hopefully that won't be the case. Right. You mentioned Mothman a bunch of times, and I'm glad because I, I tend to think that after watching the movie again, Hollywood, I'm like part of me is like I do the research of the town and the bridge sightings. And I'm like maybe this is just uh, a folk tale that grew and passed down the generations and a story that passed through. How the footage of that just seems really like I, I, the stuff you see with Bigfoot Loch Ness, like it's more believable than Mothman. Do you think this is because this thing isn't a real entity? Because I, I love the story of it. That's what draws me. It's like, even mm. if it was fake, I still want to go to this town. I want to look at this bridge and find something that I know doesn't exist because it draws me in the story and the history of it. Yeah, no, fair question. So the field of cryptozoology has kind of evolved through the years. Uh, it began in the 1950s and it was started by traditional zoologists who were looking for undiscovered animals. And uh, through the years, particularly in the weird 1970s, it began to, cryptozoology can't, began to get lumped in more and more with stuff like psychic phenomenon and the Bermuda mm. Triangle and UFOs like and stuff. Paranormal stuff, right. Yeah, yeah. so it's, it's kind of a lot of, it's, to me, I, it's a sociological phenomenon that people tend to, it's the way our minds work. It's like, oh, I've got all these things that I can't explain. I'll just kind of put them together and they're just one folder or whatever, you know. But, um, uh, but that said, um, there are some cryptids uh, that are kind of in the, on the fringe, you know, and I, I consider like the Mothman, Dogman, uh, Goatman. They're all these half-human, half half-animal hybrids, which, you know, first of all, that's a non-starter because if you understand anything about the fossil record and evolution, then you know that there can't be a Mothman, right? Mm, there's correct. no such, there's, it's impossible for a winged humanoid to exist. Right. Um, and moreover, if you read the descriptions of the encounters, it doesn't sound like a natural animal because unlike, you know, things like Bigfoot that will move away from you, these creatures chase people and scratch their cars and jump on the hoods of their cars. And that's just not a natural behavior pattern for any animal. So, so from that perspective, right off the bat, it doesn't seem like it fits into the paradigm of the natural world. And then, then there are these other layers of weirdness with Mothman. You have the, all the UFO sightings and activity that was going on around Point Pleasant at that time. Yep. You had the men in black visits, you know, popping into the newspaper office and knocking on people's doors, telling them not to talk about <laughs> it. You have some of the eyewitnesses claim that they developed psychic abilities or poltergeist activity in their house. And so with all those levers of layers of weirdness, it's easy for me to, you know, come to the conclusion that, the Mothman, if it exists, and by the way, it's not just in Point Pleasant. I've investigated Mothman cases in Mexico and Texas. Oh, wow. So and, I didn't know that. I thought it was yeah, just it's, it's worldwide. In fact, you can go back, uh, you know, 2,000 years ago to the ancient Assyrians. They had depictions of these beings known as the Apkalu, which were basically like winged humanoids. And they're, you know, so, I mean, they're all yeah. over the world. There are these winged humanoids de depicted like Mothman in different cultures. So there's a long history. But anyways, I'm, I know I'm going a long way around the barn. No, but I, I love because uh, so when you see a, a painting like that or a cave art, they had they either had to have seen something like we're talking about now, or or is passed down through generations like you were hearing about in these stories. So 
there has to be something to it. Like that, like I don't seeing a winged humanoid, like that's not an everyday occurrence. So for 2000 years ago, them to make an observation on it, there's gotta be something to that. Hmm. You would think. And the fact that they're so widespread, you know, it's, right. it's not just in one place. But anyways, I, I view the Mothman as a metaphysical phenomenon. Um, and I'm not, you know, that's not in my wheelhouse. So I don't portray myself as a quote unquote paranormal ghost hunter. That's not what right. I do. But considering all the levels of high strangeness associated with the Mothman and flying humanoid cases, if it's, if it's a real true phenomenon, and uh, I've been very, I've interviewed a lot of very credible eyewitnesses and experiencers, then, you know, it's not an animal, it's not flesh and blood. So then what? You know, right. I'm, right. I'm not too proud to say that it's something beyond my comprehension. I don't understand what mechanism it is. Some people like to try to explain it as quote unquote interdimensional, extraterrestrials from another plane of existence, dimension. And some people even say demonic if they're spiritual and that's kind of how they see the world. So they're not mm. from around here. That's, that's my conclusion. You mentioned um, kind of the fossil record and, and it's, it's uh, what I kind of like about you is you kind of take that more scientific approach to a lot of this stuff, because there's definitely people who have gone way more into the paranormal side of things and uh, kind of to pivot off that. So one of the conversations I've had with some of my Bigfoot hunting friends is uh, you know, they're, they're very much interested in these more aggressive, violent encounters that they've read about or heard about through other podcasts or shows. Um, some, some of it allegedly leading to loss of life. And uh, the theory we came up with was maybe that what people are referring to as a dog man uh, out in the woods, maybe it's not actually canine related. It's just what they can see is what they're, how they're illustrating it with their words, but maybe it's another strain of, uh, of a Bigfoot. Maybe it's, there's a, at some point evolution kicked off two different sets of species and there's one that's uh, leaning more, you know, omnivore uh, out there. And there's another that's more predatory. Um, do you have any, lend any credibility to that? Or do you think these are just fun stories? Um, no, that's, that's a, it's a good point. Um, so check it out. A lot of cryptids are considered to be cases of what I call composite identity. So there's not just one explanation. It's a bunch of different things that are kind of being lumped together. Right. And it, including in that you might have an actual mystery animal at the root of it, but then you have misidentifications of known species. You have hoaxes and people making up stories and having delusions you have, and you might have like, like you said, I mean, the, the dog man, you know, generally speaking, the descriptions of Sasquatches are pretty standard with the flat face and, you know, no visible ears or anything like right. that. But I, I, there are some cases like, uh, out here in West Texas, we have a, a Bigfoot called the Horizon City Monster sighted outside of El Paso in the 2000s. And Bridget, everyone that saw it just said that it had a dog-like head, that mm. it was a Bigfoot, but it had pointy ears and kind of more of a uh, pronounced muzzle-like face. Right, yeah. Mathism. So, um, so you could have that, I think, where people are, like you say, you see something big and dark and hairy in the woods, some people may not immediately think Bigfoot. They may think werewolf or dog man just because that's what their, their bias is. That's kind of where they, they lead them. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think that could be a possibility. Now, I've interviewed some dog man witnesses who are, swear that it said, no, this thing. And I asked them that. Could it have been a Bigfoot? And they didn't know. This thing had a dog-like. Oh. It was a wolf's head. You know. Hmm. So I've, I've interviewed a few of those folks that have seen those. And so. You know, that's, that's their impression. So that's hard to refute. Yeah. But, but I would lump the, the dog man that we hear about nowadays on all these podcasts and stuff, I think goes more into kind of that Mothman fringe, yeah. really weird area. Um, but there certainly might be some crossover where you're getting some Bigfoot sightings kind of mixed up now. And I'm sorry, I know I'm a rambler, but there's so much. I love to talk <laughs> about the, the dog man researchers that I talked to for whatever reason, have a bias where they want to always connect Dogman to Bigfoot. Mm, so, for example, in, in the LBL area in Kentucky, where you supposedly have this marauding killer Dogman, but there have also been Bigfoot sightings, there's a territorial battle going on, and Bigfoot's only on the north end, and Dogman's only on the south end. 
And I've heard that from other dogman reasons. Well, I investigate Bigfoot and Dogman, but all the Dogman sightings are over here in Bigfoot, and maybe they're competing for territory. So for whatever reason, the Dogman researchers have to keep bringing Bigfoot into the conversation, even if they're mm -hmm. not willing to admit that the Dogman is a Bigfoot or could be a Bigfoot. But for some reason, I don't know. It's just I just thought that was interesting. Mm -hmm. You know, that uh, right. it's an interesting observation that they feel like for whatever reason, there has to be some connection, you know? Mm -hmm. When That's you've done a show like Missing Alaska, and I've I've always loved Monster Quest or like Ancient Aliens, do you find that you're brought on there a part of those episodes or whatever to kind of give credence to these entities like Bigfoot or whatever, or is it just Hollywood and television trying to create this tension and drama with something just to get people to watch it? Like, where do you draw the fine line where, hey, there's a TV show. We need an expert. Uh, we're bringing Ken in for two episodes. And is it, do they need to bring someone like you to actually get people who laugh at the idea of Bigfoot existing just to draw the people that do love Bigfoot to watch these shows? Um, I mean, that's a fair question. I don't know if I've ever kind of put myself in the shoes of the, the producers and the people that put these shows in, in terms of that. But I like to think that I bring an air of credibility to the field. Right. I'm one of the more skeptical and uh, scientifically minded right. investigators in this field. And I've always, that's been my focus. And I will say that, you know, when I'm doing TV shows, typically there's an audition process first, even when you've been on 50 TV shows, they still want to do like a yep. Skype interview and, and audition you. And what the feeling that I get looking at the faces of the TV producers is like, you know, maybe they were skeptical, but they're listening to me and they're kind of like, I'm making the argument. It's like, well, wow, maybe there is something to this. Well, so. Every time I see you on these shows, <laughs> I get a sense of, okay, I got to, I actually got to pay attention because this could be a, if he's here, like this could be something real. And, but I also get the sense that some of these other shows, and I've met a bunch of the guys on killing Bigfoot um, and nothing against them is the pubids or people. Uh, but then there's other people that we're not going to date names because I don't know who knows who or whatever, but I, I get a sense there's a lot of ego in what you do because not a lot of people do what you do. And there's always this, this rush where if it's not Ken Foddy, uh so-and-so here is going to beat trip, push Ken off a cliff just to get the first <laughs> shot of big shit foot. So how do you kind of deal with the ego specifically in your field? I mean, it's got to be kind of, like I the clout chasing. Imagine, right. Like when you go, when you do your conventions, I do want to talk about this thing you got coming up end of the month, but when you do these type of things, are people looking at you like, this, this, like I can't trust this guy or this guy, he know he's not sharing his scientific research with me. Like, how do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, that is a great question. Um, but I just want to wrap up one point on the TV thing, which is Every TV company is different. Every network's different. So it's, it's a case-by-case -case basis. I always emphasize going in to the producers that I will not hoax anything. I won't fake awesome. anything. Right, right, right. It's all about my integrity and my reputation. As weird as I seem, my integrity and reputation are really important to me. That said, I have bumped heads with producers on a number of occasions where it's like they told me one thing and then I went in and they're like, well, will you say this or do this? And I don't know, you know. Right. But, but, I, but I also acknowledge and I talk to them about this is, look, it's television is entertainment, first and foremost. Correct. There are people paying millions of dollars to produce those shows. That's their money. Mm -hmm. So no one's going to watch a show where nothing happens. And so, you know, there are times when you might, I won't say fake things, but like, you know, like, like Monster Quest, you know, there was an episode where we saw some eye shine and we, you know, oh, I shine. Right. And yeah. it was right. a rabbit. <laughs> After the commercial, yeah. you'll find out, oh, it's a rabbit. You know, we didn't know yeah, it was a rabbit right episode. away, but yeah. maybe we played up the enthusiasm <laughs> of seeing eye shine just because we want to get the audience excited. Oh, there is something over there. There's eye right. shine, you know. So anyways, right. that was a tangent. Okay, big egos. Yes. Uh, big egos. <laughs> Think about it. What kind of person does it take to chase a legend? You know, yeah. so right. it's basically what you're dealing with is a bunch of legend chasers. And the big egos are not new. They go back to the original Bigfoot, you know, the, the, the four horsemen, as we call them, you know, John Green, Renee DeHinden, yep. Grover Krantz, mm -hmm. Peter Byrne, yep. Bob Titmus would be the fifth horseman. A lot of people forget him. Those guys were constantly butting heads from the very beginning. They were all passionate. They had strong opinions and ideas. 
about how to get the job done, how to find the, the evidence. And they, some of them started out as friends and ended up hating each other till, mm. the, till, the, till their deathbed, sadly. So, but it's just because they all had big egos and it's, it's nothing has changed. I mean, right. you know, I admit I have kind of a big ego at times. I feel like I've put the work and the time in and I have strong opinions. I try to work with others. I respect a lot of people, a heck of a lot of people in the field that I look up to and respect their and trust their opinions. But yes, their heads do, but because, you know, it's just, there, there is a lot of ego involved. And, um, you know, I just, I try to point that out when I, when I hear this from the younger researchers, oh, I, mm. I don't think I want to be in this field. There's too much drama and there's too much, I can't be, I was like, dude, it's just, it's always been like this though. So, I mean, <laughs> yeah. right. You know, Rene de Hinden once put a shotgun in John Green's face and said, I will kill you. You know, so that actually <laughs> happened. So, I mean, I, you know, I haven't seen anything that extreme happen, at least recently. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, it does happen that you just try to get along. You know, you, you respect other people's research if they're putting in good work. And, um, you know, the thing that gets me is that is when you get the ego and the lack of substance. So you have these people out there that are self-anointed experts that have, you know, trademark theories about everything and they're, they're packaging it and branding it and selling it in books or movies or whatever. But it's like, you know, I mean, do you, have you even really done field research? Have you really, right. you know, so I don't know, but uh, th there's a little of my ego coming out right there. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Now, end of the month, you have uh, some speaking stuff and these type of things. So when you do these conventions and everything, what is your aim to go in there? Is it to help other people understand that, like you said, your books, you are very pro-science. You, you are, you will refute stuff. You will study stuff. Is that your goal to help other people understand that to do this? Or are you there to get brought in to kind of sway people that want to think one way or the other? Well, um, I'm there to spread the, spread the gospel first and foremost, which is just enlighten people and provide the most accurate, objective information that I've accumulated. And that's the same with my books. There's so much noise out there on the internet these days and fake YouTube videos and people yep. putting up podcasts. Yeah. I mean, you don't podcast, you don't know what someone that's coming into it really doesn't know what to believe. And oftentimes they'll let their bias take over and believe what they want to believe, which is the, the coolest thing aspects or whatever so what i always try to provide is the most accurate information someone's you know and not not to be mr know-it-all but you know someone oh yeah the patterson film of, of 72 is like no it was october 20th 1967 you know it's just like in any study you have to get the facts straight right these are the dates these are the names yeah the benefit, <laughs> you know so that's what i try to provide is that clarity um i enjoy networking with other not only meeting my fans and friends but networking with other researchers and finding out what other people are up to and hearing their theories and stuff. That's always a lot of fun. You can do those at these events. Um, and to be honest with you, uh, cryptozoology is a very difficult field to earn a living. So, I mean, just getting out there and being able to sell a few books and right. sometimes I get a small speaker sphere or whatever that really kind of helps cover mm. the cost of my research and, you know, all the expenses and things that I incur. So it's kind of a mixture of things, but um, you know, I will say that I'm, you know, for example, I'm going to be speaking at the Nebraska Bigfoot Conference in a couple mm -hmm. of weekends. Um, there's going to be a definite melting pot there of Bigfoot ideologies. So I'm going to be at that event. I think I'm going to be more of the, the flesh and bone mm. science based guy. And then they're bringing over Iger Bortsev from Russia, who's been investigating nice. the Yeti and Bigfoot since the 1970s. Yeah. But Iger is now into this. They cloak, they travel in between right. dimensions and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Smart guy. I, I've met him before. You know, he's, he's put in a lot of time and work, but I don't agree with that. But he'll, he'll represent his side and I'll hopefully make an argument for the other side. So, yeah. Now, you mentioned that. What if, what if Josh and I, whoever, wanted to be like, uh, we want to learn how to pack a ruck to go on a hunt, but could you take people out in the woods or wherever to kind of, do classes or like how do you if, if i really want to take cryptozoology to the next level how do what do we do or what do you tell someone to do to get ready to go down a path which you've done your whole life 
Yeah, advice for like, uh, I mean, both, you know, someone who wants to get into it, like this is a field I really want to get into, as well as maybe someone <laughs> who is a hobbyist that's like, I treat it seriously, but I can't commit full time. Like, what advice would you have? Well, that's, that's a good question. Years ago, I actually tried to start a, a thing called crypto excursions, where I would take people out in the field that's on different awesome. expeditions. It didn't really take off. I was involved mm. with some other researchers and we couldn't quite get it off the ground. So um, kind of threw in the towel on that. But um, I would say if you're a younger person and I get emails from kids that are in high school or in college and are looking to be, get into cryptozoology, I always tell them to get a degree in zoology or anthropology or some accredited degree at a university, something I regret never having done. Because that will give you a lot more credibility coming in because a lot of the scientific naysayers, you know, who are you? But if you say, oh, I'm such and such, I have a master's in right. <laughs> you know, yeah. Yeah. Verte vertebrate paleontology, then suddenly it's kind of like, okay, you're on their level a little bit more. It brings a lot of credibility to the field. Um, and for those people and also for laymen looking to get into the field, I would say join a group. Um, there are active Bigfoot organizations and cryptid hunting, anomalous phenomenon hunting groups all over the country. And you have to be a little careful with those because some of them are a little wackier and then some mm. of them are a little bit more grounded and, you know, scientific. But, you know, that's the best way to kind of learn the ropes is to just join up a group, join up with a group and begin working with other researchers and make organized expeditions and field trips. And, um, you know, a lot of times you'll meet eyewitnesses and get to conduct interviews and you'll just accumulate uh, experience mm. and that's kind of how I did it too um, I you know I, I was already kind of grew up in the outdoors but you know 20 odd some years ago when I wanted to get really heavy in the Bigfoot research I joined up with a bunch of guys here in Texas that were like you know hardcore outdoorsmen trackers you know, wilderness survival guys. And I thought, right. okay, these are the guys that I want to be with because they can track and they can hunt and read sign. And so that kind of, you know, eventually I broke off, but at least it kind of got me, you know, acclimated to, to mm. a methodology. So I think you should start this. Uh, it was funny because whatever it is about Bigfoot, I do security for a lot of bands, the band Shine Down. Two of the members are very pro Bigfoot. Like they'll go tonight and so I think it'd be kind of cool if we put something together where we could actually go out there and I don't oh, want to sure, crawl yeah. around with a shotgun in the woods and get chased down by a dog, man. <laughs> um, but one of the cool things with Josh is he's, he's an avid gamer, um, Twitch and all this stuff, but he played this game the other day. I was watching it on a live stream, this mm -hmm. Bigfoot game. And so Josh, if you could kind of describe that game and then Ken, when it comes to pop culture, movies, television, and I'm talking stuff that isn't like a TV show based on reality. There's certain stuff that you think they overdo or underdo when it comes to like outside Harry and the Hendersons, which is a nice Sasquatch Bigfoot. Then you have on one side of the spectrum, this violent killing animal. Like there's no in-between area where it's like, it just seems everything's very one way or the other to sell people on the idea of this Bigfoot creature. Uh, yeah, to take what you were asking, um, some of those games are, I think they're kind of being inspired by, you know, a lot of the shows that even Ken's been on and, and a lot of, uh, you know, this kind of the travel channel, if you've watched recently has turned very much into like the paranormal, yes. you know, and some of the stuff on there is great. It's great entertainment. I love watching, uh, was it terror in the woods, you know, some yep. of that stuff. So I think a lot of these games are just kind of capitalizing on, you know, the, the interest. So the game I was playing the other day is just called Bigfoot. And uh, they essentially dump you off in the woods uh, with, uh, I think, uh, at least one other player you can go in as maybe more. And they kit you up with drones and night vision and cameras and rifles and all this stuff and flares. And you're just out there. It's a horror themed game, but you're out there hunting Bigfoot. You don't know when he's going to come. And uh, I mean, it scares the pants off you when he shows up. And uh, but there's other games that are that are coming out. There's a couple uh, paranormal like ghost hunting games from all the ghost hunting shows. And, um, you know, it's it's definitely a small sector of the, like the gaming audience right now. But the fact that it's even there, I think, is indicative of kind of like where the culture is kind of going and and like kind of what kids are more interested in um, in playing these days as well. So um, hopefully it. it you know, redirect some of that attention to the more scientific end of things. And people right. realize this is just for fun. Uh, or, and hopefully it doesn't keep them out of the woods for sure. Well, definitely. That, that sounds fun. I, I, that makes me happy that, uh, you know, that you've got 
people taking an active interest in these things, even if it's just on that level first, and then maybe they'll take it a little bit right. further. Uh, with regard to your question, John, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sociological uh, biases that are, that are involved in how we perceive. Now, Bigfoot has become a huge brand, right? You slap Bigfoot on anything these days and it sells. So it's yeah. like... Um, but jerky, I think, right? yeah, but, but I think for the most part, yeah, uh, the archetype of the hairy ape man, it, it, it seems to fit better in terms of, well, I mean, there's a duality there. You're right. Because, you know, on the one hand, we want to make it our, our monster because it's big, it's hairy, powerful, yeah. scary, looks like us, but it's not quite us, smells bad, you know, throws claws or throws rocks and things, has claws. Mm. Um, so I think Bigfoot plays a little bit better in terms of being a monster. And I think that's borne out by the fact that a lot of my generation of, of Bigfoot researchers were heavily influenced by the legend of Boggy Creek, which was an mm. early seventies awesome. Bigfoot film, yep. which is really scary and well done on yep. a low budget. Um, and most of the Bigfoot, cause I'm in the Bigfoot groups and circles. It's always about, you know, exists and Willow Creek and, you know, yep. some of these kind of like different creature from Black Lake. Right. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but you know, you have for the, for the young ones and the kids, you know, you got Harry and the Hendersons and then you've got yep. these kind of like little foot and Yeti kind of animated movies. So it's, it, it kind of works both ways, I guess. But um, you know, there's an interesting theory about Bigfoot and our other man beasts, even if it doesn't exist as a real flesh and blood animal, is it a cultural memory that's been passed down for thousands of generations from our ancestors who were, you know, essentially competing with and right. coming in contact with real life Bigfoot Sasquatches, mm -hmm. you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago, our pre-human ancestors. And so, you know, for whatever reason, that archetype of the hairy wild man has been passed down from generation to generation. And it's something that we need, you know, there's a sociological, there's a real, you know, need for this archetype in our reality for whatever reason it, it's a reflection of who where we came from or you know something that we once feared so who knows there's a lot of interesting aspects to the you know to the phenomenon yeah and i'm hoping that as more games and movies and tv shows get out there that like you guys both said that it, it leads credence to the people out there like yourself can that are actually doing the science and the research that to kind of help your field grow with people giving money and donating and actually trying to for me, like, oh, I'm all about the space race, but where's the Bigfoot race? I, I, yeah. I want I want that guy out here. So yeah. before I let you go, Josh, where uh, can we find you on social media? You can as well. Uh, let, let us everyone know where we can find you guys. Yeah, if, uh, if everyone's interested in uh, checking out the content that I'm just starting to make, there's not too much out there yet, uh, but feel free to follow me uh, at Long Dogs of War on Twitter um, and the same on Instagram, but with a one at the end and uh, as well as on Twitch. And we'll start putting more of those, these types of games out there um, as well as, uh, you know, anything that people are interested in seeing. Love it. Very cool. Well, guys, thanks again for having me on. Uh, had a real good time, some great questions. And thanks to everyone who kind of tuned in to check it out. Um, so I'm available, or I'm sorry, I'm uh, accessible on um, <laughs> social media, of course. I was like, available is kind of a little bit too like, inviting. My God, what is this? Like a a little too, too uh, I'm accessible. <laughs> he likes relatable. long walks in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I've got a website, KenGerhard.com. Uh, I'm also on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I have a YouTube channel where I produce short cryptid videos. And of course, you can visit my Amazon author page if you're interested in any of my books. Awesome books, easy read. And uh, there's even the side stuff, it's very, it doesn't, I'm always scared away when I read, like, I'm not a tactical guy, I mean, but when I read Tom Clancy novels, some of the stuff is above my head. I actually live that life. So, but reading your book, I'm like, man, this guy actually, like, outside, like a borderline scientist, like, this might scare me, but I recommend it to anyone, young, old, to read the books. They're awesome. They're great. No, uh, no craziness. And uh, this has been great, guys. Thank you. Thank you all for checking out this week's episode. Once again, I'm John. If you liked what you heard and saw today, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our brand new merch store with hats, coffee mugs, t-shirts, other cool stuff coming down the pipeline. Again, thank you all for support. Be safe and see you next week.
Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. All, we all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all have. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world, and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.